Well, it's good to be with you. Uh, it's such a privilege to be a Christian. I'm so thankful for uh, God's grace in my life, and uh, I'm thankful that he has not only uh, saved us individually, but he's also brought us together as a family, and so it's really just such a joy to be a church. I'm so thankful uh, for the local church, because obviously there's a lot of discouraging things going on in the world right now, uh, a lot of anger and hate and pride. It's sad, uh, especially because we know the problem is a lot worse than most people even realize it is, because the root of all the problems we are, we're seeing is, is sin. And yet we also know that God's solution, what he's doing through Jesus, is bigger as well. We've got the gospel, and we know that God has acted through Jesus and that he's not done. He's going to fix all of these problems that we're reading about and seeing and being reminded of constantly, and he's going to reverse the curse, and we're going to live in a world where we enjoy God's presence the way that we long to and where we love one another perfectly forever. Jonathan Edwards once described heaven as a world of love. I can't uh, imagine that. It's so awesome to think of the day where we can actually love each other the way that we're supposed to love each other. So we're waiting for that day as a church, expectantly, and uh, proclaiming the message. God's revealed his plan for the universe, and he's given us that message to take out. We can never forget what a privilege it is to have the gospel, and he's given us the opportunity. It's part of why I, I'm excited about the local church. He's given us the opportunity as a church, not only to proclaim that message, but also to give the world a little glimpse of what it's going to be like. The local church is designed to give the world a display or a picture of the future in the way that we relate to one another and in the way we love one another. And so this is big. It's a, it's a privilege to be a church. It's important that we learn to care for each other well. It's important that we work on relationships. It's important that we work on fighting some of those things that are so common in the world, like making all these distinctions on the basis of race or social class. We're no longer defined by what defines the world. Even the world as it seeks unity because it knows it's a good thing, even the world as it seeks unity so often creates division and that's because the world is divided. But in the church, we're actually united. God has done something shocking. He has made us one in Christ. And so even though sometimes we act like we're divided, we're not divided. We are united because of Christ. And so it is a, a joy really to gather together with people from all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different races and cultures as one family coming to hear from God. So if you'll uh, take your Bible, that's what we want to do. We want God to shape the way we think, the way we act, the way we feel as we look at Luke chapter 11. So if you'll take your Bible and open to Luke chapter 11, we've, we've been looking at verses 1 through 4, and we're going to be talking once again about prayer. How, how's your prayer life? That's the question. How's your prayer life? 
And one of the reasons we're taking all this time to talk about prayer is because while there's a sense in which the, the Christian life sometimes is, feels complicated, it definitely feels complicated sometimes, right? At the same time, there's also a sense in which it's not really that complicated. What is foundational to living as a Christian? You're just going to boil it down. Hearing God speak and responding to God, and one of the ways he wants us to respond, one of the primary ways, is in prayer. How you doing? How's your, how's your prayer life? You can tell a lot about a person by the state of their prayer life. And you can tell a lot about a church as well, because what's true for us individually is also true for us corporately. And so while there's a sense in which we have a lot to do as a church, there's also a sense in which the fundamentals are pretty simple. Church is, is not that complicated. What do we do? We focus on God's word. We, we want to listen to God speak. And we respond to God in prayer. We want to speak to God. Those are our two big priorities. How's our prayer life? How's your prayer life? How's our prayer life? I know that kind of question can feel a little intimidating uh, because most of us don't really feel like we're good at praying. I'm not sure that I've met a, a Christian yet who says, I am just amazing at, at praying. And, and sometimes we even hear other people pray and uh, they seem so good at it. We had a friend who used to pray and when he prayed, nobody wanted to pray after because it was just like you had been in heaven almost. <laughs> and you were, it sort of intimidated to pray after he prayed. And Sometimes we listen to people pray and they seem like they're so good at praying that we don't even want to try because we don't feel like we can pray as well as they can pray. I wonder, do you, do you ever feel like that? And there are a couple different ways, obviously, we might respond to that problem. But one way to respond is just by understanding that prayer is not something that we're naturally good at. You don't come out of the womb being good at praying. You, you don't feel good at prayer, welcome to the club. That's kind of normal. You don't naturally start off good at prayer. It's something that you need to learn, to practice. Prayer is actually something you need to work at, which I realize maybe sounds funny, like learn prayer, work at prayer. But if you go back to the Gospels, it's clear that the disciples understood that, and they didn't understand a lot, the disciples, in the Gospels, but they at least understood that, which is why we saw in Luke 11, they come to Jesus asking, Lord, teach us to pray. That's verse 1, Luke 11, 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And they were right to ask that. We need, you need, I need, we need to learn how to pray, which should be kind of obvious, I think, because we have to learn how to do almost everything else, right? I mean, even talking, we have to learn how to talk. Babies have to learn how to talk. They don't just talk and make sense. They begin by listening to their parents and trying to imitate, which is actually what we're trying to do with prayer. That's why we're here in Luke 11. We're listening to Jesus as Jesus like a father is trying to help us know the fundamentals of talking to God. He's giving us a pattern, a pattern to help us practice and become better and better at prayer. And we've seen that his pattern for prayer 
in verses 2 through 4 involves a number of different elements, and we're taking them one by one because each phrase is so loaded. It takes you to so many different passages of Scripture and so many different big biblical ideas. And you could preach all this as one sermon, but it would be a really long sermon. And so instead of preaching one eight-hour sermon, we've been spreading one sermon out over eight Sundays, like one point a Sunday, and we're looking at a number of guidelines to help us learn how to pray. You remember, first, Jesus starts, Father. And we said, step number one, believe. Believe. That was the point for that Sunday. You can start prayer, should start prayer, by believing and, believing and even preaching the gospel to yourself. Remember how you can approach God and, and why you can approach God. Second, this was week number two, remember you're talking to God. Father, Jesus says, hallowed be your name. Third, hope, believe, remember, hope, your kingdom come. Focus on God's promises, what God has said that he's going to do. Readjust your hopes. Fourth, ask, give us each day our daily bread. Fifth, confess and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Believe, remember, hope, ask, confess. And then finally, sixth, today, this afternoon, we're looking at the last petition, the way this prayer ends in verse four, and lead us not into temptation. In other words, help. If you take notes, that's the main point today. You write that down, you've got the main point, help. You need to ask God for help. Kids, you hearing me? Help. Specifically, you need to ask God to help you face the pressures of living in a world that's been broken by sin. That is, lead us not into temptation. God, help me. As I face all these difficulties and all of these trials and I see all of the sin around me, I've got all of these pressures in my life. God, help me not give into sin. And that's what I really actually want you to feel today <laughs> as we unpack this phrase, lead me not into temptation. I want you to feel deeply your need for God's help. Because these are not just supposed to be phrases we say, these words Jesus is giving us in the Lord's Prayer, like lead me not into temptation, check, I prayed correctly, that's done, I said that. Instead, this is supposed to be about what's going on in our hearts as we come to God, this prayer request. We should be wanting this. I need this. I'm concerned about this. God, lead me not into temptation. I need your help. And that's why we're taking this whole Sunday here because the request itself is not that complicated, really. I mean, there's some parts that we're gonna have to talk about, but it's not that difficult. But I think what is difficult sometimes is feeling an urgency about that. We've got things we're urgent about. Even this week, you've probably had things that your heart beat faster about. But are we urgent about not being led into temptation? I want this to be an urgent prayer for you. That's my goal. You are in a battle and I want you to go away today remembering how dangerous that battle is and to feel even a sense of your own helplessness. I can't do this. I need help. 
And of course, the good news is there is help. And so I also want you to feel a confidence in God's willingness to help you. And then, of course, as a result, I want you to go away convinced of the importance of actually asking him to do that. In other words, I want to show you why this needs to become a regular part of your prayer life. And to do that, I thought I could just give you a couple of reasons why you urgently need to be asking God for help. Lead me not into temptation. And the first reason, one reason we need to ask God to lead us not into temptation is just because sin is dangerous. And by sin, I mean disobedience to God's law. Anytime you don't think, speak, or act, or even feel in a way that God says you should, and anytime you speak, act, think, or feel in a way God says you shouldn't, that's sin. And biblically speaking, sin is frightening. There are a lot of things in life that we're scared of that we shouldn't be scared of. There are also some things that we're sometimes not scared of that we should be scared of. And one of the things we're sometimes not scared of that we should be scared of is sin. Sin is frightening. As one old theologian has put it, if we truly sense the evil and dreadful nature of sin, we should have an exceeding dread of it upon our spirits. And dread means terror, basically. We should hate it worse than death, sin. And we should fear it, listen to this, we should fear it worse than the devil himself. And dread it even as we dread damnation. Did you hear that? Because that's actually a little shocking. <laughs> fear it worse than the devil. Dread sin as we do damnation. In other words, fear lying like going to hell. Fear lust like going to hell. Fear sin like going to hell. If I put sin in front of you, and if I put hell in front of you, which are you more afraid of? Well, I'm afraid of both. And while that sounds kind of shocking, if you look at what the Bible says about sin, it pretty much only makes sense for a couple of reasons. Sin is really dangerous. First, because of what sin is. Sin's a crime, basically. If you look at the pictures the Bible gives us to help us understand sin, one is that sin is like a debt. Even we saw that at the end of verse 4. Another is that sin is an expression of hostility towards God. In other words, it's not just actions. It's actually coming from a heart that hates God. And still another picture the Bible gives us of sin is that of a crime. God is the owner of this universe. He's the king. And he has laws. And sin is breaking those laws. And breaking a king's laws is a crime. R.C. Sproul once put it like this, every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, every sin is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who reigns and rules over us and as such is an act of treason against the cosmic king. Feel the weight of that. Because that's another thing that makes sin so frightening. What it is, it's a crime, and who it's against. It's not just a crime against anyone. Sin is a crime against God himself. That's why they say sin is an infinite evil. That means an unending evil. You can't really come 
to an end of how sinful sin is because sin is ultimately against an infinitely holy God. What makes sin sin, as one man put it, is not first that it hurts people, but that it blasphemes God. It's personal sin, every sin. It's not just something that you do, it's something you do to someone. It's something you do against someone. Sin is men hating God, and that's awful because of who God is. God is holy, God is so good, and sin is against all that is holy and against all that is good. It's a challenge to God's wisdom. When you sin, you're saying, God, you're not as smart as I am. It's shaking a fist in God's sovereignty, in the face of God's sovereignty. You don't get to be king over me. It's a person spitting on God's love. It's no small thing, sin. It's dangerous because of what it is, because of who it's against, and because of what sin does. There's a reason sin, sin. It's not something that leads to your long-term good, sin. Read Proverbs and what it says about the consequences of disobedience. There's short-term pleasure in sin, but long-term problems in the here and now, and worse, ultimately, forever. Sin wants to kill you. It wages a war against your soul. One old Puritan explained, every sin carries hell in it. Every sin carries a lunch bag. You can think of in that lunch bag is hell. And what he meant is that while God doesn't give us hell for every sin, every sin deserves hell, and certainly every sin wants to take you to hell. Sin is frightening. It's dangerous. That's why Jesus says things like, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And that makes sense to Jesus saying something like that. The, the cutting off of your hand and the plucking out of your eye to keep you from sinning makes sense to Jesus. And it would make sense to us if sin is as awful as it is to Jesus. And Jesus, of course, sees things the way they are. Sin was that evil to him. And yet, you know, a lot of the time, it's not to us. This is a problem. We need to pray, lead us not into temptation. And we even need to kind of be urgent about praying this because sin is dangerous. And second, we need to think specifically and deliberately about praying, lead us not into temptation, because it doesn't always seem that dangerous to us. I think that's one of the greatest problems we face, actually. It's kind of like, imagine there was a plague that was way worse than COVID. And so it doesn't really matter your opinion on, on COVID. I'm saying, imagine a plague that is clearly worse than COVID, like People are steady, stepping out of their house and their skin starts bubbling and they're getting these boils and they're like dying. And yet, for whatever reason, even though objectively it's so bad, there's all kinds of proof, people aren't believing it. Maybe misinformation, whatever. And so they just keep on living however they're living and dying over and over and over again. That's a problem, right? If they're not fearing the plague because the plague is killing them. If that was happening, you would say something's wrong. And listen, something is wrong spiritually if we're not fearing sin. 
to be specific, if you're in a situation where there is something that makes it easier for you to lust and you're not fearing that, something is wrong. Or if you're in a situation where you have the opportunity to lie, to say something that's not true, and you're not fearing that, something is wrong. And you kind of have to ask, what's wrong? Why are you not fearing what you should be fearing? Because sin is dangerous objectively. And yet sometimes we're not really concerned. That's why we're not really praying. Help me, God, help me. Because it doesn't feel dangerous. And there are a number of different possible reasons for that. One could be, of course, you're not believing what the Bible says about sin. Do you believe what the Bible says about sin? And you should be honest about that because sometimes you make problems worse because you're like, yeah, I think sin is terrible, but you're, you're lying because you don't really believe sin is that terrible. Otherwise, you wouldn't be making the choices you were making. I mean, if I say, come over here, let me cut off your finger. Who's coming? Nobody's coming. You don't come over. You're, you don't make that choice and accidentally let me cut off your finger because you believe it's terrible. And sometimes the problem is, even though God says sin is terrible, and honestly, even though life experience says sin is terrible, we're proud enough to look at God and say, no, actually, I don't think sin is that terrible. And as a result, we don't feel very concerned about it. We would rather sin than suffer. We don't mind putting ourselves in places that give us extra opportunities to sin. We would rather sin than do what God wants. We're not asking God, lead us not into temptation because we don't think God's right about how bad sin is. That's one possible reason. Another possible reason, though, is because you're not believing what the Bible says about you. In other words, you think sin is terrible, but you're not concerned, that, that, that concern, because you don't think you're that terrible, really. It's kind of like if I say there's an earthquake in Siberia right now. That doesn't scare you unless you have relatives there, because you're not in Siberia. And so all of this talk in the Bible about the danger of sin sometimes doesn't affect us. It doesn't make our hearts beat faster because honestly, we kind of have a deluded view of ourselves. And if you can be a little patient with me because I want to go after this a bit, but this is just a, a temptation for all of us, especially those of us who have been Christians for a little bit of time. We don't feel naturally an urgency about praying that God would not lead us into temptation because we think of ourselves as stronger than we really are. And I'm going after this because I'm really wanting you to understand why Jesus ends this prayer by telling us to cry out help because it's a strange way to end a prayer, you know? You would expect it to end with something glorious, the Lord's Prayer. And some of the people who were copying Matthew seem to have felt that way as well, which is why they added for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, to the end of it in Matthew, which is true and good and makes sense given the way the Lord Prayer begins with us praying all these big things like, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. We would expect a great big ending, but instead in Luke, it's just help, help. Give us our daily bread, help. Forgive us our sins, help. Lead us not into temptation. 
God, I'm a beggar. I need you to feed me. I'm a debtor. I need you to forgive me. And I'm weak. I'm so weak. And I need you to protect me. And it's kind of funny because Jesus is a king, right? And there are a lot of kings who talk to their soldiers before they go to war. And usually if you were a king talking to your soldiers before they go into war, you would think you would try to say something inspiring. Like, we can do this. The enemy can't defeat us. We've got all this power. Let's go in there. Let's fight it. And yet as Jesus talks to his soldiers, he's like, it's dangerous and you don't have it in you. And so one of your primary prayer requests should just be, God, help, please don't let me give in to temptation. Which is what I think this means, lead us not into temptation. Some people have made this phrase a little harder than it needs to be because they're like, wait, is this saying God tempts us or something? In other words, is Jesus telling us to pray, God, please don't entice me to do evil? And I think, what's the answer to that? No, Jesus can't be telling us to ask that because God doesn't tempt anyone like that. James says that straight up. And then there are others who are like, well, is he saying that we should not ask we should ask God not to let hard things come into our lives. And the reason they say that is because the word temptation in the Bible, it can mean trials or difficulties. It has two meanings. So we hear temptation and we think temptation to sin most of the time. But in the Bible, the word really means most of the time just tests or hard times. And yet I don't think Jesus is meaning that here. I don't think Jesus is saying, ask God to keep you away from hard times. Because he's the one who just told his disciples that they're going to have to pick up their cross, which is kind of a hard time. And he's going to tell his disciples later in Luke, that's actually the whole time period we're in. That's a big part of what Luke 9 to 19 is trying to do is get the disciples to understand that it's about to get really hard, really hard. That's why later he's going to tell them to pick up their sword and all of those things because he's like, this time that you're in is not going to go the way you think it's going to go. It's going to be really hard. And as we read the rest of scripture, we see God uses trials to do a lot of good things in our lives. So I don't think lead us not into temptation means God don't entice me to do evil. And I don't think it means don't ever let me experience hard times. I think it means God, please help me not to succumb to temptation. And I, I think it means that primarily because of the way Jesus spoke to the disciples in other places in Luke using almost the same exact words. Like, for example, Luke 22. It's the same book, Luke 22. And it's the same disciples even. And Jesus goes in Luke 22 to pray on the Mount of Olives before he's taken away to be crucified. I'm, I'm sure you remember the story. And and he brings the disciples with him. And Luke tells us in verse 40 that he says to them, pray that you might not enter into temptation, which is literally the same prayer. He's literally telling them to pray the same prayer, which, of course, they were not, we know, able to pray for very long before they fell asleep. And so he comes to them in verse 46 and says the same thing one more time. Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And what's the temptation there? I don't think it's the trials that they're about to go through as much because Jesus knows the only way to follow him is to pick up their cross. And he's just made a whole case in Luke 21 about the suffering that's coming and how God's gonna use it. So there's no stopping the difficulties they're about to experience. Instead, I think entering into temptation is Jesus's way of talking about 
basically giving up, giving in, succumbing to the temptation in the middle of those trials to sin and abandon him. In other words, they're supposed to be praying as the trials come, God, please, I don't trust myself. I need your help if I'm not going to give in. In fact, you can kind of get the whole picture by going up to verse 31 in Luke 22, where Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And so Jesus is saying, Peter, a difficult time is coming when you're going to come under Satan's attack, and so I've been praying that God won't let you enter into temptation. In other words, I've been praying that your faith may not fail. And yet, even with that warning, you know, Peter's like, actually, you don't really have to be concerned about me, uh, Jesus, because I, I think I've got this. And Jesus is like, no! Kind of trying to do what I, I'm trying to do this, this morning. No, you really don't have this, Simon. Which is why he comes back to Simon in the garden and to the rest and says, pray. It's coming, pray. Don't be so self-confident. Pray and ask God not to help you, uh, ask God to help you not give in to temptation, which was obviously very hard for Peter to believe, given the fact that he, instead of praying, started sleeping. He wasn't concerned about the possibility of sin and failure because he didn't think that would happen to him, which I'm saying, I think, also can be a problem with some of us when it comes to sin, because like Peter, we have pretty high views of ourselves and our righteousness and our godliness and our self-control. That, that's the issue. We think of ourselves as stronger than we really are. And so let me third work on showing you why we need to pray this prayer by walking through why sin is dangerous even for the mature Christian. Because I think most of us, we know we were really in a desperate position before we came to Jesus. Like, that's clear. We were dead. Colossians 1, we were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Yeah. Ephesians 4, we were ignorant, hard-hearted, callous, given up to sens sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's true. Titus 3, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Meaning... We weren't able to do any spiritual good. We weren't able not to sin before we became Christians. We weren't able not to sin. We didn't have it in us. At best, all we could do was replace one sin with another. If you think about how man was in the Garden of Eden before Adam disobeyed God and how we were born after, you'll get a picture of what it was like for us. Before the fall... Man was able not to sin, and also, clearly, able to sin. We had options, <laughs> and man was able not to die, and again, man was able to die as well. That was before the fall, and yet all that changed when man rebelled against God, because now we're born, and we're still able to sin, like in the garden, but now we're not able not to sin. In the garden, we were able not to sin, but now we're born not able not to sin. It's like we no longer have the ability not to die. As unbelievers, we no longer had the ability not to sin, which given how terrible we've been saying sin is, was a really desperate condition for us. And I, I think most of us are willing to admit that about who we were before Jesus. 
Most of us recognize that we were in a desperate situation, but now that we are Christians, sometimes I think the problem is that we don't really feel very helpless anymore. Like we've learned the words. We, 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 know, we know what to say. And so we're like, I'm saved. I've got this. And you need to follow me now because look, the grace of God has done some amazing things in your life if you're a Christian. You're not who you were. You're not dead. You're alive spiritually. And that means you have desires you didn't have before and you have new abilities you didn't have before. One big one being you can obey God now. And so it's not just like, oh, there is no hope. I might as well just sin all the time because God's grace has worked in you. And yet it's important to understand that if it were somehow possible to suck all the grace out of you, to suck all the grace God's shown you out and just leave you on your own fighting sin in your own power, you are done. We are done. We would do terrible things. And what's more, even with all the grace God's shown us, one thing he hasn't done yet, it's coming, I can't wait, but one thing he hasn't done yet is remove all the sin from us. And so we still have sin in us. Its authority has been broken, but it's still present all the time in our hearts. Even though you're a real Christian, you still have sinful desires. And while it's true that God's grace has changed you, one thing it hasn't changed is the nature of those sinful desires. Meaning your sinful desires are still sinful. And they're still ugly and gross. And they're still capable of exercising a powerful influence on your life. In fact, let me give you an illustration. One of the men in church history who's written the most on this is someone called John Owen. One of the best books ever, like seriously. Sin and Temptation by John Owen. And it's good because he's quoting Paul all the time. And one of the things that he talks about is something called indwelling sin, and that's the sin that's still in our hearts as believers. And he describes that indwelling sin as being like a kind of law for us. And he's quoting, kind of riffing on Romans 7, 21, where Paul says, so I find it to be a law, and he's talking about sin, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And Paul's explaining why you can't keep the law of God apart from the Spirit's work. And it's because indwelling sin is like a law as well, which is a metaphor to help you understand the power of sin in your life. You can picture the sin in your heart like a law. Now, obviously, for that to be helpful, you have to think, what's a law? John Owen says, a law is something that commands you, and a law is something that motivates you. A law says, if you do this, good will happen, If you don't do this, bad will happen, and there will be consequences. And so it is a kind of authority, a law. It wants to be obeyed. And the sin remaining in you as a believer works like that. It no longer has any real authority in your life. It doesn't have any real rights over you, but that doesn't stop it from pretending. And so it's always telling you what to do. It's commanding you. It's enticing you. It's bullying you. 
And I'm saying all this because as a believer, you can't be naive about how relentlessly indwelling sin is doing all of that in you. It's always working against you to do evil. It's a a single-minded kind of enemy. It has one goal, and it never gives up on that goal. Quoting Peter, writing to Christians, he says, sinful desires wage war against your soul. They want to destroy you. And look, the good news is that as believers, that's not all there is to us, this indwelling sin. Because there's also, because of grace, a law, a real law that has authority, working to do good, and even a will, a desire to do good, and it's powerful, it's grace, great, and it's grace. And this principle of grace in your life is even more powerful than indwelling sin, if you really are a Christian. But indwelling sin is pretty powerful. That's the point. As a believer, there's still a fight going on, and it's a serious fight. It's not a pretend fight. Please don't let your kids think it's a pretend fight as they look at you, or they're going to be confused when they grow up. Let them know. Help them know. It's a real fight, even for you as a Christian. It's kind of like someone said, indwelling sin is a little like a rhinoceros. And so if a rhinoceros comes into a restaurant, and maybe this would fit better in Africa, but you can, we can get the picture. If a rhinoceros comes into a restaurant, it doesn't have any real authority in the restaurant. You don't see a rhinoceros come into the restaurant and you're saying to yourself, oh, I guess that rhinoceros must be the owner of the restaurant. No, it's an invader. It doesn't belong there. It's not in charge. And yet it certainly does have a lot of power. And it can do a lot of damage. Like the sin that's in you even now as a believer. And one reason it has such power in your life is because of where it dwells. It would be one thing if you were just fighting the world out there and the devil, that in itself is pretty intense. But if you think about what makes sin so dangerous, it's the fact that it's not merely attacking us from the outside, it dwells in us. You are fighting the sin that's still in your heart and it's always gonna be there in your heart until you get to heaven. It never fully leaves you in this life, this enemy. It keeps constant surveillance on your life. And worse, it's not just watching you or following you you like a stalker. It's in you. Everywhere you go, it goes there with you. And so it's like you have this enemy living in your heart, and this enemy, it doesn't get tired. It, It never really rests It's always excited about destroying you. It doesn't lose its passion for war. It doesn't grow tired of hurting you. It's always looking for opportunities to take you in the wrong direction. The way Paul puts it, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And it has certain advantages as well when it comes to influencing you. Like, for one thing, habits. It's one of the blessings of growing up in a Christian home. You can help your children develop habits, but... Some of us, we were unbelievers for so long that indwelling sin has habits on its side, if you know what I'm saying. Habits are things you do without thinking that you're doing them. And before you became a Christian, sin trained your habits. It taught your habits how to work. And so now that you are a Christian, even though you want to do right, you still got these habits, these things you do without thinking that are on sin's side because sin was their personal trainer. And so a lot of times sin doesn't have to do much work because you just do it. 
because you've been doing it so long that it feels natural to you and you don't even notice that you're sinning. And when you do notice, the battle's not even done then because sin is a really good liar. And this is part of what makes sin so dangerous. It doesn't just force you to drink the poison, like grab your hand and force you to drink the poison. Instead, it slowly deceives you into wanting to drink the poison and thinking that drinking the poison is good for you. And even worse, arguing and getting angry with anyone who's trying to stop you from drinking the poison as well. And I guess I'm going on and on because I'm trying to remind you how foolish it would be for any of us to ever be casual about temptation. As long as we're living in this world with indwelling sin at work, in us, if we're casual about the spiritual threats we face, it's like we're walking down a path towards spiritual destruction. If we're not frightened at all by the danger of sin in our lives. It's kind of like when we first moved to South Africa. Everyone was telling us how dangerous it was with crime and all that. And uh, we got the idea that it was. Like people were just like shooting each other all the time. You walk into the grocery store, it's like, bang, you're dead. If our car broke down, we thought, this is it, we're going to heaven. That actually happened one time, and I was pretty goofy as I was standing by the car thinking everyone wanted to uh, kill me. And at first, the reason we thought that is not only because people were telling us that, but it sort of felt like that. We were there just for a couple weeks in a restaurant. Thieves come in with their guns. We're under the table hiding, and they're going around, waving their guns around. And so we were pretty vigilant when we first moved, like about safety. And so we had all these alarms in our house. Uh, and we would always be locking all these gates actually inside our house. You don't just have gates outside your house. You have gates inside your house. And so we would be carrying all these keys around. It felt like we had to unlock like five gates to get to the bathroom. And yet what happened over time as we lived there is that it, it started not feeling as dangerous as it did before. And as a result, we began getting complacent. We weren't nearly as careful. And I think that's how some of us are with the Christian life. We hear all this talk about indwelling sin and the danger of sin, and we're careful at first, but after a while, it doesn't seem so frightening. And we maybe agree that it's really dangerous for other people. Their sins are dangerous. But we start kind of feeling like we're living in a neighborhood where it's not quite so bad, if you know what I'm saying, when the reality is almost the opposite. If you've heard rumors of how bad sin is, it's actually worse. It's more dangerous, and it's more deadly. In fact, it's so much more dangerous, we can say, apart from the grace of God, you would have no hope of defeating it. In fact, it's kind of funny as we pray the Lord's Prayer. It takes away a lot of our fears, for sure. As you remember, God's your Father, He's going to glorify his name. He's going to establish his kingdom. You realize that most of the stuff you're frightened about and concerned about isn't so concerning. But I'll tell you, as you pray and you're looking at God and you're looking at God's plan and you start looking at your indwelling sin, one thing actually does become a little more frightening. Some concerns are taken away as you pray, but one concern even becomes bigger, and that's sin and your own deep-rooted sinfulness, that's scary. But while it's scary, again, we're not hopeless because God's proven he cares. The good news is God wants to help you. And if you're a Christian, you can prove that just by looking at all the resources he's given you so you can deal with indwelling sin. He's given you new spiritual life and he's given you his spirit. 
He's given you his word. He's given us each other, and he's given us promises, all these great promises like Hebrews 4 about how we can come to him in our time of need that we might find grace to help. And so obviously because God's in this and God's provided these resources and because God's willing to help, we're not hopeless. And yet as we look at all the resources that he's given us, it's obvious the only reason we have hope is because of who he is and because of what he's done, which is why as we're looking at God, we're not hopeless, yes, but as we're looking at ourselves, we are watchful. We're careful. I mean, underline watchful because that's what I'm really going after today. As Christians, I think we're supposed to be living our lives with a kind of relaxed desperation. I mean, we know God's at work, so we're not giving up. We're confident, but we also know we're sinners and that sin's dangerous. And so we're careful. We're watchful. Are you watchful? If you're not watchful, it's not because you're not in trouble. It's because you're in more trouble than you realize. What's it mean to be watchful? It means to be mindful, to be careful, to be cautious. It means to do your best to avoid anything that it might expose you to sin. It means you don't mess around. You don't say to yourself, I'm so mature, I've got this. No, that's a sign you're not spiritually mature. Because if you were spiritually mature, you would be much more careful. It's not the right word, but it's almost like you have to be paranoid when it comes to sin. You, you, you can't be too watchful when it comes to sin because your heart has a thousand different ways of lying to you. And if you're the least bit unwatchful, you're going to be surprised and fool, fooled. There's a saying, you know, it's not being paranoid if they really are out to get you. Paranoia thinks everyone's out to get them, and if they're not, that's strange, but if they are, that's being smart. And the Bible makes it clear that sin and temptation really are out to get you. And so what do you do, specifically? How can you be watchful? One, you run away from temptation yourself. You don't stand there and fight it. There's only one good response to temptation, run. Part of being watchful is knowing yourself and avoiding situations where you know that you could fool yourself and avoiding listening to people who are lying to us about particular sins as well. And this kind of vigilance is not something you grow out of because we've all seen great men fall into sin. We're like, how did you end that way? And imagine, you could imagine standing on the edge of a battle and you're watching all these heroes these great soldiers go into battle and get defeated one after the other. How does that make you feel? It makes you feel scared, right? And that's good. That's the thing. In the world, we often honor men who are like, I'll take on the biggest obstacle. I'm not afraid. We don't usually make a movie about someone who's constantly running away from battle. And yet spiritually, that's a sign of strength, actually. Physically, strong men are like, hey, I've got this, send me into battle, but not spiritually, not with sin and temptation. That's what I'm talking about. That's not spiritual strength. Strong men spiritually know their own weakness. As Jonathan Edwards once put it, none, none are in as much danger as the most bold. They are most safe, who are most sensible of their own weakness, most distrustful of their own hearts, and most sensible of their constant need of restraining grace. 
In other words, the strongest men are the men who feel the greatest sense of dependence on God and on God's grace, which is why, one, they run from temptation, and two, they run to God in prayer. Being watchful is running from temptation and running to God in prayer. That's the point today. How do you watch? You watch and pray. You make this a regular part of your prayer life. You pray, help. In the middle of all the pressures and difficulties of this life, are you urgently going to God to help you not give in to sin? How do you do that exactly? How do you make that a regular part of your prayer life? One, you could look at particular passages which describe common sins and temptations and then look at your life. Lord, help me not give in to sexual immorality. Help me not give in to impurity. Help me not give in to anger and pride. Protect me from greed. Lord, lots of people are self-deceived. Do what it takes to open my eyes. Or two, you might stop and think about your life and the particular temptations you face because of your temperament, your background, your stage of life. I was praying the other day, Lord, as I get older, help me not to get tired. Help me to remain on mission. Lord, energize me and enable me to work harder than I have before. Or three, you might look at various passages in the Bible where people are praying and look at what they're praying God will do and pray along with them. I do this in devotion. So I was reading Psalm 90 the other day and Moses says, teach us to number our days. And I thought there must be a temptation to forget the shortness of life. And so I prayed, Lord, please protect me from being foolish and wasting the time you've given me. There's different ways to do it. There's a lot of material to pray for help in the Bible. And there's lots of reasons to pray for help. But I guess the question is, do you pray for help? Do you feel how much you need God to help you? Because you know, sin is dangerous. And not just for others. For you. For us. And God's willing to help. He's proven that but he wants you to ask him. Isn't there something beautiful even as a father when your son asks for help? You wanna help him, but what a moment, even in terms of your relationship, when he asks for help. Do you ask him? How's your prayer life? How's our prayer life? There's a lot to the Christian life. There's a lot to be in a church, but on the other hand, it's not really that complicated, at least when it comes to the fundamentals. We can't expect to do anything very well if we're not doing the fundamentals very well. And what are the fundamentals? We've got to be good at listening to God speak in his word. And we've got to learn to become better and better at speaking to God in prayer. How? We can start here. When we pray, believe, remember, hope, ask, confess, help, help, exclamation point. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for prayer, the gift of prayer. Thank you that it's not a work that we do to somehow get you on our side. But Lord, thank you that it's about a relationship. We come to you in Christ, knowing that you're for us. And Lord, because the gospel's so good, and because you've done all this work in our lives, and because we know what's coming, we want to honor you, and we want to please you, and we want to stay away from anything that dishonors you. 
We, we trust you. Sin is terrible. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to see it as terrible. And, Lord, help us not to be foolish and to think we're stronger than we are. But like little children, uh, Lord, help us to keep running back to you because you're the father who always comes to his children's aid and who has the resources to help us overcome. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.